1: Today, we're pleased to continue our conversations with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn. And today we're gonna to talk about some Catholic history and talk about the Christian order. From in the modern age, or you could even say in the postmodern age, it's very difficult to imagine a world in which church and state were united in common purpose. To that end, we'll probably start, not all the way in the beginning, but we'll start in the 800s. When we look at that time period, that, that century, Your Excellency, it's the successor of a whole series of different Roman successors going back to the emperors. And I was struck by by reading some of your, your work on this issue that this is something that is actually really important, part of the providence of God, that our Lord came at a time in which the Roman Empire controlled most of the civilized world. But that that necessary civil corollary to the church's work was so important. So I suppose we probably could start with the Edict of Milan, if you'd like.
0: Yes, uh, the Edict of Milan was uh, 313, I believe. Uh, And it was Constantine's permission that the Christians, who are the Catholics, uh, could practice their faith without any molestation. It was not the establishment of Christianity as the state religion. Up to that time, uh, Christianity had been persecuted. There were 10 great persecutions from the time of the apostles to uh, this 313. The worst being that of Diocletian, who was the immediate predecessor of Constantine, uh, who wanted to wipe out all Christians in the empire and did a, a good job of putting to death a great deal of them. most of the martyrs that we read about in the Roman martyrology come from the period of Diocletian. So this permission uh, on the part of Constantine comes as a complete reversal of the policies of the Roman Empire. And we know that Constantine did, did this because of the intervention of God in his victory over his enemy, Maxentius, at the Milvian Bridge uh, near Rome, uh, which, Gain for him the ability to be the emperor. Uh, and he put the Christian symbol upon this Roman standards, which was unheard of and shocking. The Romans were extremely superstitious and extremely attached to their gods and their omens. And uh, they would open up the, the entrails of animals in order to find out what was going to go on, what if there was going to be a victory or a defeat uh, they, they believed in, in vile uh, and, and stupid superstitions. And so the, the application of this new, of the symbol of this new religion for them, something which was not a state god, was rather shocking. And so Constantine uh, permitted the Christians to function in the empire. At that time, he controlled only half of the empire the Western part. And this was a tremendous breakthrough. However, the empire was still very pagan. Uh, Constantine continued to call himself the Pontifex Maximus and function as the pagan high priest. Uh, So it it was not a a complete reversal or, or conversion, but the process was in place. And that was very important, that now Christianity could spread itself without the horror of persecution. Now that was a a double-edged sword because up to this time, because of the persecutions, only those who were extremely fervent and extremely brave were Catholics because those who were afraid of the persecutions would not become Catholic. And also to be a Catholic was like being a dog, uh, you were just uh, the trash of the empire. You were this uh, member of this horrid sect and uh, you were looked down upon by society. So the church uh, in the, in this early fourth century now has a position and, and it is no longer bad to be a, a Christian. It is acceptable. It is seen in a certain good light and therefore it is going to attract a whole new echelon of people, people who are not so fervent, people who, who just want to be part of the crowd and want to go along with certain things, not to say that they were impious, but not so fervent as the first three centuries. But it does gain for the church its ability to Catholicize society and culture, which is an extremely important issue for the Catholic Church. Because we learn so much from our culture. We are just little children at at the, the feet of our mother. When it comes to learning what is right and wrong and good and bad, we learn so much from our culture. What other people do and think, what is considered good and noble and even holy by other people has a tremendous influence upon us. What is put into the practical order and not only the theoretical order, And so the church was then able to Christianize, to Catholicize uh, the the Roman Empire. And this gradually happens despite all of the horrors of Arianism in the fourth century. Uh, This gradually happens uh, during this century and by uh, the time of Theodosius, 382 more or less that time. uh, So in a period of about 75 years, Christianity becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire under the Emperor Theodosius. Here begins the real inculcation of Catholicism into this once pagan place. It will take, again, a long time to make a completely Christian place out of the Roman Empire, for example, the gladiatorial games where people were killed to the screams of crowds cheering uh, went on until the middle of the 6th century, the 500s, until a pope finally said, this is it, we just. We can't have this anymore. But the people were still, still so attached to their pagan ways that it took a long time, a full 200 years practically, almost 200 years to get the people to abandon certain things of the pagan age. Uh, But nonetheless, that you had the imposition of a law whereby it was no longer permitted to practice the pagan religions of ancient Rome, and where any kind of public violation of Christianity and Christian law, Christian custom, was a crime, that's under Theodosius. This would continue to develop. Uh, in the 4th in the century, in, excuse me, in the 5th century, you saw a great deal of the barbarian invasions. So this Christianization of the empire is, is impeded a great deal by all of the political chaos and turmoil of the 5th century in Rome and the empire in general. Also by the fact that the invading barbarians are Arians. They, they are evangelized by Arian bishops, which was yet another immense problem for the church after the church is finished with the, the persecuting emperors, then it has to face all of this, these heresies that come to it one after the other. Uh, heresies in the East, Utica's and the Monophysites and, and the Nestorians, and there's it, it, just a, a, a bubbling cauldron of heresy during the fourth and the fifth centuries. Then you have the, the invading barbarians, which just makes political chaos of the West. Especially the East is holding a little bit better, but most of the heresies are in the East. And the next big point in the in the history of the Christianization of the Empire is the Code of Justinian in the mid five hundreds about five fifty. He is the Emperor in the East, and he does his level best to restore all of the territory of the Roman Empire, uh, and he, he is quite successful. Uh, he didn't. He he, he re, uh, reconquered a lot of the a uh, lot of northern Africa. He reconquered Italy. Uh, he uh, put together, or he attempted to put back together, the entire Roman Empire. You know, he was no saint. He wasn't perfect, but he did make a wonderful code of laws, which established Catholicism as the Roman state religion. And that's a very important point because it means that. Uh, That society and the civil government understood that Jesus Christ is truly God and the savior of the entire human race and that it makes all the sense in the world and it is even obligatory that all society, all humanity should be ordered toward him and that all of the laws of of the state should be subject to the laws of Jesus Christ and of his church. And this is what Justinian put in place, and which is what the popes were trying to do the same thing in the West, that is establish a Christian state. And the popes were constantly looking to reestablish the emperor in the West. Diocletian had split up the empire, so the Eastern empire was continuing under a a visible head, uh, the, the Eastern emperor, but the West, was in chaos because it was especially subject to the barbarian invasions. And so the popes were for centuries, from the time of the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD to the time of Charlemagne in 800, constantly working toward a reestablishment of a Western state, that is, that would replace what Diocletian had left behind or or was left behind by the, the Roman emperors in the West.
1: So Justinian didn't buy into our modern notion of religious liberty then? Absolutely
0: not. If you check the Code of Justinian, you will see some very severe laws against the violation of anything Catholic. Uh, and and it was a Christian state. The coinage has Christian symbols on it, crosses, and and uh, it was a uh, the Christian state. I think you said that
1: some of the laws of the general councils were incorporated into Yes, encoded. that's correct, yes.
0: It was. Again, this is something
1: the modern mind can't even, uh, can't grasp that that would, that would happen.
0: No, but the modern mind is something that is an anomaly. That is, it, it's, it's a bizarre, uh, how would you call it, um, fact in the history of the world. Don't forget the world goes back 6,000 years, approximately. And, and if we look at the first civilizations, Mesopotamia and Egypt, Religion is intimately bound in those civilizations, intimately bound. And, and if you look at just even the architecture uh, of various civilizations, the, the, the temples are bound up with the government houses. The churches are, are bound up with, with the center of government. It has always been true because it makes so much sense. It, it, religion is the highest knowledge. It, it is the, the most important aspect of our lives. Therefore, it should be intimately bound up with government and culture. This idea that there should be a separation of of government and culture from religion is an absolute insanity. What it does is is it causes atheism because the the rights of religion are so demanding and, and so clear that if you strip religion of those rights, you essentially place it in the trash can. It, you, society becomes atheistic, and that's what has happened in the past 200 years or 250 years. In 1789, you had the first nation in the history of the world to establish a state that was indifferent to religion, and I'm referring to the United States of America. Uh, when James Madison was asked, why did you not mention God in the Constitution, he responded, oh, we forgot which was a flippant answer. He, he was a, a deist, and uh, everything that, that the founding fathers were—they were, they, they were uh, people who were inheritors of all of the bad ideas of John Locke and, and the English deists—and which meant that they thought, well, God exists, but He doesn't bother with the human race, and we don't have to bother with Him. He's like your grandfather that moved to Florida, and you, you know, occasionally <laughs> send him a postcard or something. You know, he, he, he doesn't, we don't have to be concerned about morality or pleasing him or his commandments or anything. He's just a figurehead god, something like the British Monarch. So the, the, that was the first case in the history of the entire world, including pagan peoples, including the, the whole planet. There was, that never took place. So really the history of this indifferent state or atheistic state, the godless state, is very short in the history of humanity. It's, it's like a minute in the history of humanity and doesn't have a, a lot of credibility at all. It has a, a very low credibility and is leading to the destruction of modern states because the morality is just going down the tubes.
1: Well, I think it's interesting here, since you mentioned that it takes a while for Catholicism to wear down pagan customs. You said that we had the gladiatorial games going on for a while. I know that there were some issues in Europe with uh, understanding the church's laws on marriage and that you could only have one wife and you couldn't just yes. get rid of her. And that despite the way that Catholicism compels is, is by argument and it's by, by example and by love. It isn't um, necessarily, you know, chopping your hand off because, because you stole. And so when you look at this gradual development, you, you, the, the code that you refer to, the code of Justinian, is, is an artifact of that civilizing influence by the time we get to John Locke and all the people who've, who are heirs of the Christian civilization that has been building over all these years, they decide they don't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go back to the beginning where they didn't, they, they're they actually worse than the, the pagans and the goths and the Visigoths because they, because they have our inheritance, which the Visigoths didn't have.
0: Yes. It is so natural to man that he, man, even in his most barbaric state, has a sense of a state religion and the, the the necessity, not only of individuals, but of the state and of culture to respect the religion. In his most barbaric and ignorant state, he understands that. The, the medicine man in, in the North American Indian tribes was, was a person of great importance because he was in communication with the demons. And, and but he was held up and, and they would do what the medicine man said to do. Uh, it, it is so natural and logical uh, to deny it is is something that is contrary to nature. Uh, but you see don't forget John Locke and people like him. Uh, England was full of unbelieving deists in the 17th century and in the 18th century. Uh, Bolingbroke, Hume, uh, many many others uh, were uh, they were really the products of Protestantism. The reason, one of the reasons that they became deists besides their own pride was the fact that Protestantism became incredible because believing in free examination of the scriptures, you were not able to arrive at a unity of faith and truth. So everyone had his own little religion for as many Protestants there were. Uh, there were, the, that's how many religions you had, and there was Protestantism was breaking up constantly, and everyone was contradicting each other in faith and truth, what was proposed or, or was supposed to be the truth. And so the intellectual classes looking at all of this nonsense going on in Protestantism said, well, this is ridiculous. This can't be Christianity. And so Christianity became for those, those Protestants something incredible. And so they look to philosophy. They they look to some other solution for their religion, and they became deists. Uh, so really, the, this deism is the product of Protestantism. It's impossible to establish a a state religion if you have three hundred religions in your in your realm, because which one do you choose? Obviously, and and. Uh, so it, the Protestantism ruined the, this possibility of, of the, the state's uh, professing of a, a single faith and a single religion. Well, plus being a deist is great. You
1: don't have any responsibilities and there's, there's no fasting. Yes. No, you can eat what uh, you want. Yes. You Bacon can. on Fridays.
0: That's, that's uh, yes, Francis Bacon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, you can, uh, yes, as I said, the most is sending a postcard to your grandfather in Florida. They had certain rights. Uh, pretty much, it's the same as Freemasonry—a generic god that doesn't bother with human beings.
1: Well, and when you're talking about this time period, Your Excellency, this is almost a thousand years removed from. We could say uh, an apotheosis, uh, a a crowning moment in in Christendom when we have the Pope crowning an emperor in. When we, left, when we left off from that, you were talking about the creation of a, of West, of a Western uh, corollary to the Eastern Empire. Yes. So how do we get to um, Christmas Day
0: 800? Well, the, the popes, as I said, were laboring in the West to reestablish the emperor in the West. And they were looking to the East to do this. The Popes were constantly badgering the Eastern Emperor to do something about the West because it was in political chaos. Uh, The Lombards were making horrible inroads in Italy. Uh, The the whole West was just a political mess. And uh, little tiny kingdoms, weak kings, and, and just a political mess during that time. And the Eastern Emperors were uh, not responsive at all uh, to the, the needs of the West. And so the popes, uh, they, they because the Lombards were, were making such a problem in Italy, they looked to the Franks, the Frankish uh, tribes in what is now France to do something about the Lombards in Italy because it was just an absolute disaster. Pope Gregory the Great, who Uh, died in uh, the early uh, 600s, he thought that it was the end of the world, that the Lombard situation was so bad that he thought this was the beginning of the end of the world. And so they looked to the Frankish kings, uh, predecessors of Charlemagne, who put Italy in order. They came down and and defeated the Lombards and and put them in order. And, And so the Pope naturally turned to the potentates that were emerging in the West, and uh, the Pope, who uh, finally uh, uh, St. Leo II, I think it was, uh, decided, and it was a big decision, to crown, uh, Pope Leo III, uh, to crown the Frankish King, then Charlemagne, emperor in the West. Now, this was a slap in the face to Byzantium. A slap in the face to Byzantium, and probably caused, or was one of the causes, principal causes, I think, of the Schism of Photius, which took place in the 800s, later on in the 800s. Uh, Constantinople was just furious that the Pope would, would propose to do such a thing. But the Pope was the de facto. Uh, leader in the West. He never claimed to be emperor, but everyone looked to him as the authority in in the West. And uh, he decided that this is the best thing for the political situation in the West, and he was going to do it. So uh, he did that thing, and Charlemagne established a a Christian empire in the West. Unfortunately, it was short-lived, but uh, he did enact uh, wonderful laws. He was no saint, saw so a number of women and so forth. But uh, he did enact wonderful laws in the in the in his empire uh, and uh, established a Catholic culture. Uh, the the really established the 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 means uh, to develop a Catholic culture, which flourished all for four or five hundred years. In Western Europe, and uh, which was the High Middle Ages, I mean, that came out of this whole period of Charlemagne, uh, and again it was the establishment of the Catholic faith. So in that period, you, you from Charlemagne up to uh, up to the schism of the Greeks uh, in 1054, I think it is, you had a complete. Catholicization, apart from those areas under the Muslim control, Spain, of what was once the Roman Empire. Northern Italy was also Muslim at that time. Northern uh, Africa, I'm sorry. Northern Africa was Muslim at that time. But you you had a, a at least an attempt at a reproduction of the Roman Empire and it was entirely Catholic. And this was the, the goal of the, the Pope was to to see this happen. And, and there was a hope that the Muslims could be driven back by such a strong empire. Uh, and that was, a, of course, their goal, too. And we know that that happened in the 1400s in Spain. And gradually before that, too, uh, uh, Isabella drove out the last remnant of the Muslims in Granada. But the, the Spanish were gradually taking back Spain during the Middle Ages.
1: Well, an empire and emperor is such a grand term. Um, your Excellency, when we think about you know we we're used to kings in the medieval ages, but we think about an emperor. I mean, even kings looked up to the emperor. Potentially, yes. he was the, the king of kings, and, and he would be crowned by the pope. And so, uh, when we look at that, uh, I think there, there's even is there not even a prayer in the missal for
0: the yes emperor? for the emperor the, that dates from Charlemagne. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, and that is the, the Christian Roman Emperor. That was the idea. And uh, he left his empire to his three sons, and they split it up. And that title gradually uh, was assumed by the the branch of the line that was reigning over the German areas, what is presently Germany. And so there was a Holy Roman Emperor all during the Middle Ages. That title eventually was transferred to the Austrian Emperor. And by uh, and it expired in 1918 with the abdication of the Austrian Emperor, and, but he held that title of Holy Roman Emperor, uh, which uh, and the fact that it's in the missal shows the Church's interest in having a a a large state that that professes the Catholic faith. The, the Church always wanted the the Roman Empire and the not not necessarily the Roman Empire as such, but a great empire that was Catholic. I was always looking for that, especially in Europe. Is
1: it fair to say if the Pope was head of the family, that the emperor would be considered the eldest son of the the sons and daughters of the, the kings and the other monarchs were sons and daughters, that the emperor would maybe be given a primacy of place among the other monarchs of the time?
0: Well, the definition of an emperor is somebody who is in charge not only of one people, but of many peoples and can be set over many dukes or or lower entities, uh, even kings, Uh, for example, the Roman Empire permitted kings, Herod was a king that had the permission to rule from the emperor in Rome. So an emperor is is something, uh, is a person that rules over many, many disparate peoples, like the Russian emperor, the Tsar, many, many peoples in, in that broad land. Uh, And the uh, Austrian emperor was somebody who ruled over many peoples. Uh, I forget how, I think there was something like 13 different languages in the Austrian Empire, quite a few different languages. Uh, That's the notion of an emperor versus a king who is the head of a particular people, a specific nation, the French or the Spanish. See That's the difference. So an emperor is somebody, in most cases, that rules a a very large area. Napoleon was an emperor. Very different Emperor from Charlemagne. And very, very different, like the anti-Charlemagne. Notice the, the 800 to 1800. That is the span of the Christian state in Europe. Uh, despite all of the setbacks against the Christian state in Europe from the Reformation to 1800. Nevertheless, the laws of the Middle Ages uh, prevailed uh, in the Catholic areas. As as late as the the reign of Louis XVI in the 1780s, uh, there was a case of uh, some uh, young men that had to flee to England in order to escape uh, death because they had desecrated a crucifix. They were being pursued by the police because they had desecrated a crucifix. And they would have been put to death in France except for the fact that they escaped to England. So England has a long history of protecting... uh, Of protecting uh, all of the people in Europe that detested Catholicism. (laughs) However, in England's defense, uh, King George III, who was very well known to to, uh, Americans as the king who was during the American War of Independence, he received 5,000 emigre Catholic priests during the French Revolution who fled France and uh, they were able to live in England and he supported them. So this was such a great favor in the eyes of Pius VII that when Napoleon called upon all of Europe to close its ports to the English, that was the continental system, that Pope Pius VII refused because he said he would not close the ports to this people who treated his priests so well. Mm. Well, we also have George III to thank for the Quebec Act. Yes which, yes, which would help Catholics here yes. in, in our country. Well, and which actually inspired, uh, in part, the War of Independence because the Protestants here were so concerned that the British were going to permit Catholicism in these colonies, which is the worst thing possible. Which is like the, the devil itself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if we look at this year eight hundred, your see, you wouldn't say that this is the peak and everything is downhill from here. It's a is it a peak on the way to another
0: peak? Yes, it is the the final triumph over all of the problems of Western Europe, over the barbarians, over the, the latent paganism. It, it is the crystallization of the, of the Christian state in the West, something that had already taken place in the East in, in 550, uh, now is, has, is taking place in the West. And as I said, it's going to create a, an organized place in which the Catholic culture can grow. And this period from eight hundred to twelve hundred is is a period of of wonderful Catholic culture in law and in literature, uh, the Gregorian chant, the, the everything we know from the Middle Ages uh, is created in this time, and it flourishes. It's like a flower blooms. It blooms in the thirteenth century with all of the. St. Thomas Aquinas, the great cathedrals, everything we know about the Middle Ages. It, it's, it's like a, a slowly growing plant during this 400-year period and, and blooms at that time.
1: And there's so much we can talk about here, Your Excellency, but one of the things I was struck about in, in some of your writings about this was that you wrote, as much as liberty is the moving force of the modern world, obedience was for the medieval man. And this idea, obviously, of order. Uh, something that we don't have any concept of, and I would say liberty in the modern world, libertinism in the in the postmodern world, mm-hmm. right? So um, when we think about this obedience, I think it's, it's fascinating to see how everything is ordered correctly. Um, and there's so many different things we can talk about during this time period, but I suppose why don't we could start there: um, how obedience was ordered. In this yes,
0: because the, the the source of all authority is God's authority. There is no reason why one man should prevail over another man without the authority of God. It is God who has authority over each human being. And therefore, if somebody does not bear the authority of God, he has no right to tell you what to do or to put you in jail or to put a gun to your back or anything like that. He has no right to do that. And so the, the medieval man understood this linkage between King, Pope, and God, and himself, and understood the the, the duty to obey. And, and he saw this great order of society, which had been seen also in ancient times before Christ, but with the coming of the true God, the true incarnate God, our Lord Jesus Christ, it was all so much clearer uh, uh, that, that medieval name was just, imbued with it, 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 was, it was, he was filled up with the sacred and, and the, the uh, obedience to, to the commands of God and seeing the king and the pope as representatives of God in his life. So much so that if the pope uh, dissolved the, the, uh, the oaths of, of the uh, dukes and the various lower nobility to the king, that was the end of the king because the Pope wielded the power of God. That's how how, how structured society was and, and how observant uh, it was of the presence of God, even in the secular institution of the government. This is back before popes had to worry about getting slapped. If yes, they, if they yes, would do well, that, that, that is an incident, uh, another stop on the train toward, <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that shortly, but. Uh, when you're talking about disobedience
1: of, of the law of God, in the modern world, all we have is, for such crimes would be what the Muslims do. We have this idea that if you would, if you would dis- disobey a law of God or you would speak against God, the Muslims have specific punishments for you, none of which mm-hmm. are pleasant. But we actually had a time uh, in, in, in Christian history where this was also part of, of our conception. We, we would consider it criminal, to speak against God, we would consider it, which again is extremely foreign to the mind of an American, you know, where everything is permitted. Yes. But can you speak a little bit about that? Again, this is something that we're not used to at all, this idea that uh, it's criminal to, to speak against God.
0: Yes, uh, The again, it makes all of the sense in the world that if God has come into the world by his only begotten son, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, and has saved the world from its sins, it is perfectly logical and makes all the sense in the world that society and individuals both should be ordered to him, to our Lord Jesus Christ, totally. He is the boss and, and, and his representative upon earth, uh, is the, the, the Pope and the, the priests, bishops, are uh, to be obeyed. Uh, that the church is his agency upon earth, the extension both of his incarnation and his redemptive act. The holy sacrifice of the man is perpetuated through time. That this sacralizes all of the life of man and also not only the individual life and his home life, but also his government life. Uh, and therefore the, the, the supreme law of the land should be the commandments of God and the, and the commandments of the church. The culture of the land should proceed directly from the faith. And so you would, for example, be hard pressed to find a cultural product, let's call it, in in medieval Europe, which is not religious. If you look at their literature, look at their philosophy, look at their, their architecture, their painting,
1: everything. They weren't making any best buys back then.
0: <laughs> no. All the intelligence of man was directed toward manifesting the supernatural. It is a marvelous thing to to look at, that that man was so ordered. And again, that doesn't mean everyone was a saint. There were plenty of sinners at that time, but they understood that they were sinners, and they went to confession. Uh, They did not justify their sin. They did not say what we're doing is perfectly all right just the visiting of one of those medieval towns in Europe tells you everything about that time. And you're hard-pressed even to find a single building that is not ecclesiastical, that has any interest, artistic interest whatsoever.
1: Well, and I think, your Excellency, this is part of understanding how strong the notion of pilgrim was during this time period, that a pilgrimage is you wouldn't get in a car and fly off to Rome with some priests and have four-star meals and quote-unquote call that a pilgrimage. Uh, so back then you, you actually had to walk there and you could make, you know, a pilgrimage that would be a very big deal for you, but that this was also an expression of what our life on earth was, mm-hmm. that this, this was a journey, this was something we knew was temporary and passing and everything we did had to be ordered to that end. And anytime, anything that we were doing, it was you know, if not a waste of time, it was at least time not well spent. Yes. And so when you have that put onto a society, when they understand that even the unbelievers, then no one pretends to hold up those other aims that are not ordered towards eternity as important. So again, in a world of pop culture, music, pop music, and other things like that, it's difficult to imagine when all the music and all the songs were oriented Around the church, everything.
0: Yes, even the plays. The uh, they would uh, perform plays in front of the cathedrals. Uh, 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 all always about religion. People had religion on their minds, and, and uh, we see this a little bit in, in some of those Muslim countries. You see, the uh, for example, the recently uh, Chavez died, and uh, the president of Iran went to Venezuela. He got in trouble back in Iran because he embraced Mrs. Chavez, which is against their law. Mm. They, I, I, Obviously, that is not the right religion, but at least they understand that religion must be a part of society and that you must conform to the laws of religion. That's true in Saudi Arabia. That's considered a holy land. Uh, and it's true in Israel. The only places that have repudiated Religion, as part of its law and culture, are the lands that were evangelized by Catholicism. First, they turned on it through Protestantism, and then now through unbelief and modernism, they have completely overturned this wonderful order that was set up, and which, as I have said many times, is so logical and reasonable. Why would you repudiate the law of God? Under what title do you strip society and culture of the law of God and the true religion? you
1: know, is a fascinating time period. So we have, as you say, these 400 years and we still have artifacts that come down to us from this time period. We have architecture and we have the music and, uh, and, and the art, what started to change uh, a- after this time, or we could even say during this time period, but what led to the next um, the next stage of Christian culture uh, the next, the next stage of, how Christians lived in their culture. Maybe that'd be a better phrasing.
0: To to me, the end of the, the great Middle Ages was the incident in which Boniface VIII in the early 1300s was slapped in the face by a lieutenant of Philip the Fair of France. There was a dispute about taxation of the clergy and of the church in France between Boniface VIII and Philip the Fair the Fourth who was the grandson, by the way, of the great St. Louis. How far uh, the apple the, fell from yes, the tree. the great one uh, who embodied everything that, that <laughs> was desirable in, in a monarch. Uh, uh, just to put a, do a footnote for, on St. Louis, he was the one that forced his entire court to go out to uh, Sans to pick up the crown of thorns uh, and to process barefoot back to Paris, which I think is about 30 miles at least, back to Paris, uh, where it was enshrined in the Saint-Chapelle, which is there to this day. And so the king carried barefoot with his whole barefoot court, uh, this great relic uh, back to Paris. Uh, He uh, also was the one that uh, proposed the cutting out of the tongues of those who blasphemed. Uh, He did not go through with it because the Pope told him that was a little bit too severe. (laughs) But you see at least his consciousness of the necessity of, of putting into force the law of God and a public recognition of religion and the Catholic religion. Well, he also banned usury, which used to be a religious issue as well. Yes, yes. And, uh, Before it he, became a religion. He also banned bars in France and all mm. gambling.
1: Well, that would be a very different France, wouldn't it? France, from our, our modern yes, France. very, very different France. So, well, of course, we have an amazing saint, an amazing model for kings and for for the French, and uh, unfortunately, we're left with...
0: What well, we have, is yes. Philip. <laughs> well, St. Louis also took government very seriously, he himself would dispense justice in the law courts. Uh, he, he wasn't, uh, the monarchy for him was not running after women and hunting and having parties that cost uh, millions of dollars. Uh, he would go himself at times uh, attend the law courts. He would also visit hospitals and visit the sick and visit orphans and widows. He spent his life in charity. I mean, it was a big job to be king. And it wasn't just the pursuit of pleasure, as later kings would do. Mm. So, uh, you know, he he wore the, the hair shirt, and you can see in the, in the treasury of Notre Dame what he wore as his, his penitential outfit. Uh, so, I mean, just to continue that footnote of Saint Louis, which gives you a a picture of Christian uh, a Christian society that the king is is not some pleasure seeker. A real a person with a real job. Uh, so then, something happened. Now, the 13th century is is sort of a mix of this flowering of Christianity, but also the beginnings of the darkness. Because one of the reasons for the beginnings of the darkness was prosperity. the The 13th century was very prosperous for Europe. Uh, and the reason being that the Crusades opened up a lot of trade and a lot of contact with the East. It was, uh, and also just the increase of population. Uh, Europe itself was involved in a lot of commerce, uh, and nothing wrong with commerce and money in itself. But as a general rule, when when money goes up, faith goes down. That's and the so the the uh, people become just distracted by material things and therefore uh, believe less or see less, perhaps, their the, the supernatural goals. They don't disbelieve them, they don't reject them, but they see them less, they see them more obscurely. And so that was a, uh, a problem. And, of course, Philip was looking for money <laughs> and wanted to tax the church, Boniface felt, Uh, improperly. uh, He was not against some taxation, but he thought that Philip was outlandish in his demands. And so Philip was a very, very prideful person, much unlike his his grandfather. Uh, He actually called together a a, a synod of bishops in Paris where they declared themselves independent of the Pope. Uh, He did a Henry VIII, essentially, back in the 1300s. And uh, force, uh, by pressure, these bishops to capitulate. Very few did not capitulate. Uh, And in the course of events, uh, sent a a, uh, troops into into Italy where they met the Pope and wanted to put the pressure on him to capitulate. He wouldn't, he was slapped in the face and imprisoned and died in this imprisonment in, in Italy. That slapping of the face of the Pope uh, is, uh, to me, the, the beginning of the end of the Middle Ages and the, the great flourishing of Christianity. And it is the, the beginning of the slide down uh, the other side of the mountain. The, we see the monarchs now in the 1300s and 1400s uh, turn toward political interests uh, without this attention to the, this sacred character of society that was given to it by Catholicism. They, they want money, they want power. And while they still recognize all the laws that were put in place in the Middle Ages, that there's no great change, there's no... Uh, their actions do not follow what the theory is. And, uh, you see this. Uh, also, the, third, the 14th century and the 15th century uh, sees a great increase of wealth in Europe and trade in Europe, this is the time when Europe really gets rich. And you you see this this turn toward material things in the art and architecture. It's more sensual uh, in this period. Uh, And uh, you see the the gradual turning away from the high intellectual plane of the, what we call the High Middle Ages, into this sensuality. a, a more interested in, in, in what the senses see and feel than you ever saw up to that time. And so it's a decline. Uh, it is also in Italy at the time of humanism, Petrarch, and uh, the beginning of looking at man as man uh, and not in his relation to God. Uh, for example, the only time in medieval art that you would see human beings without clothes on was in portraying Adam and Eve. Whereas in the as you get into the Renaissance, I mean, everyone's in his underwear or less. You know, it, they must have all been from it's, Florida, it's uh, and, and that's an, yeah, the, that's a significant thing because clothing is a punishment for original sin. The, the, the feeling of nakedness is one of the effects of original sin. So clothing is a is a sign of original sin. Whereas nakedness is the pre-sinful state of man. That is, man without a relationship with God, just man as man. The noble savage? Yes, the noble savage. The uh, We don't have to consider original sin in the definition of man, so to speak. That means you're taking man as a purely natural thing and not as something that has an intrinsic uh, relationship to God as creator and redeemer. You see, the Middle Ages was very conscious of the redemption of man, and that's why man was always portrayed with his clothes on, (laughs) because he came into this world in the state of original sin. Uh, The Renaissance is gradually, and we're not in the Renaissance yet, what we're talking about, but we see the, the slide towards centralism and the slide toward humanism, in this 200-year period from 1300 to 1500. Things never happen suddenly. Uh, things always happen very gradually. It takes a long time for ideas to mature. Uh, nothing happens overnight. And you know, in those rare cases in history where you have sudden changes like the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, those things were brewing for many, many years. And, and sure, you might have a flare-up a sudden flare up because of some incident, but all of those things were brewing, and it's important to see that in history, and also for the understanding of our own period. What is brewing in our own period that will one day have a political or religious effect?
1: But I think it's interesting you talk about engaging the intellect more in art. Um, yeah, one of my one of my favorite icons that has been that's been written is uh, one in which the three angels who are visiting Abraham are are all looking at each other. And of course is this typology of the Trinity and you're very engaged. You're looking at that icon. You're thinking through the implications. You're, you're sort of lost in the difficulty of trying to understand the Trinity. That's where your mind goes. You're, you're pulled into that and it's a very different engagement. Modern art, you look at it and you think, what am I supposed, what is this supposed to mean? It's a complete reversal. Um, and and when, you, when you're talking about that art, I just think about my experience of engaging it and it's a completely different experience from, from I would say trying to encounter modern art, which is actually much more difficult.
0: Yes, you see the medieval art and the Byzantine art, uh, the icon, the typical icon, uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help, the, the famous icon is an example of it. That is two dimensional. That means And it's bizarre to us because we're so used to sensual art. It's bizarre to us. Why is it in two dimensions? And it's not because they were unable to draw three. The Roman art, the pagan Roman art, was very sensual and very three-dimensional. If you look at Pompeii, uh, that you can practically speak to the figures, they're so real. Uh, But that in the Christian era, that, that the idea was Intellectual. So you look at Our Lady of Perpetual Health, for example, and what comes directly off the, the picture is the sacredness of the mother of God. The whole picture is so sacred, and it conveys so much idea uh, uh, of divinity uh, of the Christ child that she's holding. And the there are so many symbols that convey ideas. They don't convey as much to the senses as perhaps a Renaissance painting, but it conveys ideas to the intellect. And medieval art does that precise thing, all the Romanesque sculpture, for example, that is kind of foreign to us. We're saying it's foreign because we don't understand what it's trying to do. It's trying to strike our intellects. It's not trying to strike our eyes. And so the ideas are put into stone. heads, for example, that are a little bit bigger than the bodies, and uh, because it's talking to your mind. The, the medieval period is a time of the mind. The great geometric uh, architecture of the, of the Gothic and the Romanesque too. Geometry speaks to the mind. The reason why uh, the beautiful rose window of Notre Dame is so beautiful is because it's speaking to your mind. It's balance, it's order. It is taking stone, which is uh, very heavy, and making it into lace, you see, that, that it, it sort of defies stone. It, it, it does a beautiful thing, and that speaks to the mind that stone could be so obedient to the sculptor. So that when you walk into a Gothic cathedral, you are immediately up- uplifted. It speaks God right away. Uh, and. Whereas you walk into a Baroque cathedral, say St. Peter's Basilica, which, is, which I love, which is a magnificent place, it is talking to your senses. It's not talking to your it's mind, it's talking to, to your senses. Overwhelming your senses. Yes, color. See, uh, angels in various states of like this and big wings. And it, it's talking to your senses. And through your senses, it's talking to your mind. I'm not condemning it. I'm just saying that it's speak to a different taking, a, taking a different route. Yes. Uh, so the Middle Ages is very much characterized by an intellectuality, if we can use that word. And and the, the, the art that you're talking about, the iconic art, is that. And many times we don't like it because it is not sensual. Is well, the, it's not, it doesn't provide immediate gratification. right? And that's all we care about. You have to look at it. But all of those great mosaics of the East and, and like in Sicily and all the big mosaics of Christ, the Pantocrator, they speak directly to your mind. They, there is no question about what you're looking at. And, Your
1: Excellency, with that Our Lady of Perpetual Help icon that you're referring to, is that the one where our Lord has his sandal kind yes, of slipping off? Yes. And I think what I love about that is not only is it appealing to your mind, but it's catechetical.
0: Yes. Right? So the,
1: there, there's a reason behind that. Okay, I, I I get what's
0: going on there. Yes. And, and you're you talking. Have, I'm sorry. And you have the Mother of God, and and, and uh, Jesus Christos. And it, 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 everything is is catechetical and doctrine. And see, it's not just uh, the Renaissance uh, nice Italian girl next door, <laughs> you know, holding her baby, and you put a halo over it. <laughs> I mean, Raphael used to use his own mistresses as models for the Madonna, you know, pretty Italian girls. And the halo goes on and then the, that's the Madonna and, and it speaks nothing to your mind. You just say, well, that's a pretty Italian girl.
1: Well, I, I suppose, too, if you look at the way. I, Our Lady is the nationality of whoever is painting. You know, yes. whenever you're in Italy, you find Our Lady is Italian yes. everywhere you look. Uh, but if you look at the icons, there's not a specific race that's or nationality correct. behind that's it. Correct. So it's a woman. And, and there's, that's another way to look at it. There's an enculturation aspect. But uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about some of the art that I have in my house that is, is part of what you're talking about. I have the uh, the Crucifixion by Roger van der Leiden, uh, van der Leiden who is it's in the Prado. And it's it's a it's a beautiful scene, but what you're drawn to is these striking colors, right? Because you're looking and you say, part of it is they're these striking colors in the midst of such a desolate scene. But the other part is you're thinking, well, this is before they had digital. Look at all these beautiful colors they were able to bring out, which is of course not what I want to be focusing on when you're looking at this this the scene of the crucifixion. And it speaks to your point about what where art has taken us and and. The, the, the slip. we, we, we on the other
0: side of the mountain. We're coming down the mountain at, by 1300. And uh, music, for example, in the Middle Ages, you had pure melody. That's the Gregorian chant. The reason why Gregorian chant is so naturally s- suited to the sacred is because it has no dance beat in it. No, dum dum dum. is pure melody, and it is speaking, therefore, to your intellect only. In the sense that melody speaks to the intellect. Harmony, it has some harmony in it. It has balance and order, musical, and that speaks to your ears. You like it, it speaks to your senses, but primarily it speaks to your intellect. Whereas the in the this uh, late Middle Ages, where we get more harmony, we get the descants, the Joquin Desprez and various others who are introducing descants into the chant. Lower, you know, two parts and then eventually three parts and four parts. Uh, and that's not bad. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that man is more interested in the sensual now than he was in the Middle Ages. And, and that, those are signs of that. The, the, the art. One of my favorite painters, probably my favorite painter, is Fra Angelico. But he's, and he paints beautifully sacred things. But he is in that period where we're passing more into the, the sensual. Yeah, he has that heritage of, of Christianity and yes. Christian art
1: but he can't help what you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. the culture of the time yes. is pressing in on him, and yes. he, he feels it, And as any Catholic does, feels it necessary to respond to that culture in yes. a meaningful way, yes. and, we, and you see that perspective start to lengthen yes. out yes. Uh, And some of what you're talking about.
0: So it, it's a slide, but it's, things are still in good condition culturally and, and governmentally in this period of 1300 to 1500, let's say 1517. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> well, I I I I'll book us into the 13th century. I'll bookend us into the 13th century, Arseny, and I, I want to talk. I want to leave with two footnotes or two appendices, you could say. The first one, I obviously want to talk about St. Thomas, uh, especially the seminary, especially regarding you. Perhaps would, could we say that that St. Thomas is is one of the greatest gifts of this time period to us. Uh, uh, as Catholics, uh, of, of the history of man,
0: he's one of. I mean, he is a, a tower in the history of man. Uh, he, and the reason that he is is, he had the natural ability, an incredible natural intelligence. Uh, he was able to read one of the fathers and memorize it as he read it. He did not have them. He quoted from memory what he read. That's how vivid his memory was. And uh, so, a, a, an incredibly intelligent man, far more intelligent than anybody that has ever lived. I mean, just uh, when you read some of the things that he did, uh, and he he combined that with sanctity. So sanctity gives you this vision of God, the gift of wisdom and, and gift of understanding. Uh, so he was looking at the things of God. He himself said that that where he learned the most from 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 going to the chapel, I mean, contemplating God, he learned, that's where he learned the most, people would say to him, how did he learn this? And, uh, and you can see it in his works, it comes off the page when you, when you read it, that his treatise on the Trinity, for example, and his, his masterpiece of the treatise on the blessed sacrament, uh, his poetry on the blessed sacrament, you see this is, this is coming from a vision of divine things, uh, from his own contemplation. Uh, so to, to give this, you know, to combine these two things a uh, natural talent and with the, with uh, the mind of a, or the, the life and the love of a saint, uh, is, is an incredible gift to the human race. And, uh, he put into one, one great opus, uh, all of the, the work of knowledge and contemplation of the fathers and all of the great thinkers of of Christianity. Uh, He he systematized the church's theology and philosophy. He he corrected Aristotle, he corrected St. Augustine. There is, in a sense, no more theology after St. Thomas, except to expand what he said, to to apply what he said to, to perhaps new problems that that occur in theology. But he he so systematized it and so condensed it, we might say, into one uh, comprehensible system that it's like inventing the wheel. I mean, we no longer have to invent the wheel. We can improve on it here and there, but it's done. So you reword Andrew Lord Whitehead's
1: uh, footnote from Plato to everything is a footnote from St. Thomas. Everything is a footnote from St. Thomas.
0: Well, Plato had all sorts of problems. Uh, no, but, uh, I mean, he even drew from Plato, too. But uh, when you read him, he, he, he has, you see his tremendous knowledge of, of antiquity, and all of the, especially of Aristotle, uh, and uh, applied all of those wonderful things of, of, of the philosophy and theology of previous ages to Revelation and and, and made conclusions from it.
1: Mm-hmm. The other question, I think we're in the midst of, the Novus Ordo Church is having a, a papal conclave now. There's a lot of discussion in the media about you know what the role of the papacy is and should there be devolved powers? And of course, the, the media doesn't understand how Catholicism works, so they would talk about it in that way. Something that came up at table that we had a chance to talk about um, is the idea of absolute monarchy or constitutional mar- monarchy is, is what the, the papacy is. And as we're moving into the next period of history, I think it makes sure as we look at this time period, that we understand what the papacy is and which you would say is an absolute monarchy. And yes. could you expand upon on that a bit and, and, uh, and talk about that for our viewers?
0: Well, you have to define what you mean by absolute and constitutional and moderate. And uh, An absolute monarch is the supreme legislator and he is not dependent upon any legislative body or any counseling body to make laws. His word is law. That is the notion of an absolute monarch. The notion of a constitutional monarch is one who is not the legislator, but who consents to legislation made by some legislative body, usually parliament of some type, assembly, and typically executes the laws through his ministers. So for example, Uh, Parliament passes a law and sends it over to Elizabeth, who signs. Uh, No English monarch has dared to fail to sign something passed by Parliament since the 1750s. Technically, if he doesn't sign it, it's not law. Hmm. But I think they like to keep their heads attached to their bodies and and, uh, keep their jobs so that they don't have to flee to France. France is the place where British people in trouble flee to, and England is the place that French people in trouble flee to. So that, that is a constitutional monarch. Obviously, the Pope is not a constitutional monarch. And his word is law. However, he is subject to, obviously, things that every Catholic is subject to, namely revelation, the teaching of the Catholic Church. He cannot alter the teaching of the Catholic Church. He can alter the law of the Church, but he cannot alter the teaching of the Catholic Church nor any of those things that proceed from teaching of the Catholic Church that necessarily have a connection to dharma. So he cannot make legal something that is contrary to dharma, even though it might be within his realm of the law. He, he cannot do that because by his very nature, he is obliged to promote the common good of the Catholic Church as every authority is bound to do, and therefore cannot change the constitution of the Catholic Church, and must uphold its very, very defined constitution. And, and it's, it's clearly obligatory and unchangeable constitution, which comes from Revelation itself. So he is bound to many things. And the popes have said this in the past, By so I cannot innovate any. I am. I'm bound to these
1: things. Well, I'm thinking so, about an interview we did back in 2009, when we talked, and again, we're so far removed from the proper practice of a pope, not just because we're moderns, but because um, we have not had a pope for many, many years. So when we look at, I, I think I asked you the question about the new mass. You said the pope could sit down and, and compose a new mass and have that. And we think about that. Would he have? also had the right to, let's say, outlaw the traditional mass. So he, let's say he had written a perfectly orthodox mass on his computer. And he said, here, here's the new mass, but we're getting rid of the old one. When we think about his word being law, does it extend? in some obviously a super hypothetical situation, but would, would that extend that far where he could abolish an old practice, an old ancient law and put in a new one because his word is law?
0: Strictly speaking, yes. That does not address, however, the prudence of it. Does he have the right, the strict right to do that? Is that, is that within his power as lawmaker? Absolutely, yes, it is. But the, it would be so imprudent that it would be sinful would be, to, to do such a thing to the church because, the the again, the rights and the customs of the church are the fruit of a long period of development and to say, well, we're throwing all of that out and we're doing this now, is it would be to, even if what you were putting in was, were completely orthodox and completely in conformity with the faith, it is an extremely imprudent thing to do that to any institution. Much less if it were a striking departure yes, from, yes.
1: from the mass. Yes, so,
0: uh, but uh, nobody is contesting, for example, uh, if we, uh, posits the hypothesis that Paul VI was a true Pope. Nobody is contesting his ability to cancel out co-primum as a law. At least I'm not. Uh, there, there's a popular idea that he could yeah, not, you know, right. but that's false. It, it was a law made by Pius V, and there's a general principle of law that an equal does not have power against an equal. Uh, so nobody is arguing his power to impose a new missile. What we're arguing is that this missile does not reflect the Catholic faith, and in fact it reflects error and, and teaches error, uh, and and even heresy uh, by its uh, it, its what it does and what it doesn't do. You know, you can read Father Chica's book through, you know, to hear about all that. But the argument against the new mass is not a legal one; it is a doctrinal one, and he is bound to doctrine.
1: Well, that being said, to your point about prudence, I've always thought that anyone who would mess with co is, is going to incur the wrath of the holy apostles, Peter and Paul. And that's its own issue that, you know, you have to be very careful You're about. Dealing if with you
0: read co-premium, those that is directed not toward future popes, but always underlings, cardinals, bishops, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't say anything about a pope there because he couldn't. He knows that. It's a law. It's, it's not a, a, a declaration of doctrine. It's just a law. He was putting into law what was the common practice in Rome at the time. And, and he was saying everyone can use this Roman missile. Uh, and uh, anyone, even if you have a, a, a local right like Lyon and Milan and local rights, any priest can elect to use this missile. And I impose it on everybody else. Uh, that was the it was a law that wonderful law, and and made for the unity of the Catholic Church during the Tridentine period. I don't think the Catholic Church ever had such such a period of flourishing from the point of view of its internal life and and observance of of the law by religious orders as the Tridentine period from the time of St. Pius V to the time of Pius XII. In our whole history, I don't think you have such a strong observance of of the of religious life and the and doctrine and a unity as in that period. And that's what was trashed by Vatican II. That beautiful jewel of, of the Tridentine era was taken and trashed because the modernists hated those very things. They hated the strictness of religious life. They hated the unity of doctrine and what they considered to be medieval dogmas. And they hated St. Thomas. They hated everything that uh, represented the objectivity of doctrine. The liturgy. Yes, and the sacredness. And they wanted to impose all of the relativism of the modern age. And that's why they went through with Vatican II.
1: Well, actually, that's a, a lot. We've gone from around 300 <laughs> to 1274. <laughs> yes, the
0: 1960. <1960s. laughs> <laughs> with, with a little look forward. So we, we will
1: cover definitely in, in uh, the Tridentine and other periods, hopefully in some future interviews. But yes. Yes, for today, thank you so much for, uh, for taking us from, from the early Roman times to roughly uh, 1274, the end of the 13th century. Thanks for your time, Excellency.